Welcome to Exploring Hydrogen. Here we will learn about all the exciting advancements, opportunities and challenges of this nascent energy sector. We delve into how hydrogen can contribute to the decarbonisation of Australia and the world and investigate what it's going to take for adoption and into transportation, industry and society. I'm Andy Marsland. Welcome to our energising journey. Welcome to the Exploring Hydrogen podcast, episode 10. I can't believe how quickly it's flown by. I'm thrilled to welcome our guest today, Heather Bone. A very warm welcome, Heather. Thank you, Andy. Nice to be here. Heather is head of ESG for Tor Global Express. She has more than 20 years experience in renewable energy, environment and sustainable development, strategic and business development, safety, marketing, communications in mines, energy, waste, transport, logistics and manufacturing in Australia and internationally. Wow, that was a mouthful, wasn't <laughs> it? Was, I got through it. <laughs> and uh, as many of you will know, Tolo one of the largest freight and logistics companies in Australia. So I'm sure we've got a fantastic and exciting discussion ahead of us. Fantastic to be here, Andy, and really looking forward to having a chat about hydrogen and, and what we might be able to achieve together. Yeah, great stuff. Let's start off with uh, an overview as tall as a company then. Sure, uh, sure. Can you give the listeners a bit of a background of an overview? So I think anyone who is on the road in Australia and New Zealand recognises the Toll brand. What they might not be aware of is that in about 2015, Toll Group, which was a consolidation of a number of entities, Toll Group was sold to Japan Post in about 2015. And then last year, very excitingly, Toll Global Express has been sold back into Australia. So as of the 1st of September, we're a completely separate entity. We're owned by a private equity firm called Allegro down in Sydney. And Allegro are known as a really transformational organisation. They want to see Global Express transform into hopefully the world's, if not Australia's, but the world's most sustainable and uh, logistics and, and freight company. So we're in a pretty exciting place. We've got for last devilish count, maybe six and a half thousand trucks of wow. a, a huge variety. Wow. Yes, yeah. We have 1,500 forklifts alone. We've got the two ships that go back and forth between the mainland and Tasmania. They're called Roro ships, roll-on, roll-off ships. And we have 41 planes. So we're an incredibly diverse organisation. We are probably one of the only intermodal specialists in Australia. So we can provide freight in virtually you know, any manner. And we're one of the biggest users of the rail freight network in Australia as well. So very, very large, very diverse organisation. Where to start then? There's so much to go up. I know, uh, right? Maybe we can uh, target the vehicles then to start with, so the road road transport perhaps. And uh, yeah, it's great to hear that the organisation is embarking like uh, like a number of other organisations on this energy transition that we're on and decarbonisation. So where do you start on the, on the the size of a fleet like that? Oh, it's, it's like, how do you eat an elephant, right? <laughs> Just one bite at a time. Yeah. It's a really good question though, Andy, because our fleet is so incredibly diverse you know, from anything from small parcel vans, little one-ton vans, all the way up to huge line haul prime movers that go up and down the coast and everything in between. It means that our 
decarbonisation journey is going to be just as diverse. There's going to be the smaller end of the market, so the parcel vans and the light and medium ridges that will become electric vehicles, without a doubt. We've got the, the heavy end of the market, which will definitely become hydrogen at a point in time. And then you've got this gap in the middle until they meet together. And that gap is going to be all about alternative liquid sources of fuel. So renewable diesel, biodiesel blends, those sorts of things. For our our ships, where to start? You know, at some point in the future, they will be hydrogen for sure. But in the meantime, they're going to be green methanol or biodiesel, renewable diesel. For our planes, they're going to be sustainable aviation fuel. So you look at that plethora of opportunities for us, you can really recognise there's not going to be one magic silver bullet. We're going to need a number of different solutions for all of those parts of the supply chain. Yes, yeah. And I've talked with a number of guests on this podcast series before about the energy transition being a bit of a, a spaghetti plate of... Uh, <laughs> That's a good uh, way to put it. <laughs> a mishmash of so many different use cases and so many different technologies coming to the fore. Toll has been quite vocal in the need to be sustainable and to build sustainable and responsible supply chains. So what does that mean to you and how are you going to bring in some of your partners along the journey? When we started as a, as a brand new business as of the 1st of September, we've had the luxury of the support, absolute unwavering support from Allegro as our new owners and and the board is incredibly supportive of our ESG transition. But we also have the luxury of having a CEO, Christine Holgate, who is just so passionate about not only ESG but about decarbonisation, about efficiency, about minimising waste. It means that every project that we talk to the executive team and the board they are always going to come at it from let's support this. They really are coming at it from we need to figure out how to decarbonise our fleet. We know that has to happen and we know it has to happen really quickly as well. I think the challenge for Global Express is around well, how do we do that when the price is so different? So when you're talking about electric vehicles and and hydrogen vehicles, the flow on price of that is at least more than double. And that has to go somewhere. Transport and logistics, a lot of the time, the profit margins are in the single digits, you know, the one to 3%. It's a very high volume, low profit margin industry. It's a very old industry as well, of course. And so to make these changes, when you look at the total cost of ownership of our fleet, as an example, for us to go to electric vehicles is, say over a five-year period, at least double that total cost of ownership. It's really expensive to do. And for hydrogen, we don't even know what that's going to be yet. We know that at a point in time, it will make economic sense. But it's a bit like you know when mobile phones started from going those big clunky the ones, bricks. the bricks, <laughs> to become iPhones and these tiny little things that you fit in your pocket. You know the pricing of those hasn't necessarily changed, but the technology, that pace of technology, has really changed. So, I think we're going to see. You know, business cases that we take to our board, to our executive team, really changing quite rapidly. And what we are discussing today is not necessarily what we're going to be discussing 
in a year's time, let alone in five years' time or 10 years' time. I think there's going to be a a really, I guess, a exponential change in the supply chain and, and how that pricing flows onto the consumer. Yeah. And how much of it is toll leading the way in terms of this is our initiative and pushing it out to the market? So with that, are customers willing to pay a green premium yet to cover some of those increased costs? Oh, I wish. I <laughs> wish they were because our we want to be at the forefront of this. We absolutely want to be the industry leader in decarbonisation. Mm-hmm. But that makes for some very challenging conversations with our customers. So on the one hand, you have some customers coming to us, so say Woolworths, Coles, Ikea, Officeworks, they want to be at the forefront of the decarbonisation journey as well. They absolutely want to drive that change. And so from our customers in in playing that critical link between their customers and them, we know that we can have that conversation with them. The challenge is how do we then pass that cost on somewhere because the cost exists. Global Express can't go broke just because they want to decarbonise. It makes no sense. And so the conversations we're now having are, okay, is there a way that we could work together with our customers and their customers to say, are you prepared at some point in the future to pay a premium for a low-carbon solution? And those are the conversations that are starting to happen now. And we are starting to see that change, but it's certainly a challenging conversation, Andy. Yes, yeah. And you're starting to see it through your procurement and the work that you're tendering for? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So all of the bids and tenders that are coming in our way have a number of ESG components, if you think about you know, the environment, the social, the governance. They are very rapidly pushing towards waste and recycling, so minimisation of waste and how we can work together on our recycling. They're absolutely pushing for diversity and inclusion, Indigenous relations and local job participation. That's really critical in all of our bids and tenders, making sure that we are employing from within the communities in which we're operating. But by far the biggest thing is, okay, what are you doing to decarbonise? And we can talk about scope one and scope two emissions, you know, till the ends of the earth. But for them, our scope one and two are their scope three emissions. So we're definitely having those challenging conversations now. And we're in a much better place, I think, for managing and and reporting for our scope one and scope two emissions, I think scope three still has a long way to go for most entities. Yes. Looping back to the um, all the vehicles, so the thousands of road fleet that you've got, the two ships, the 41 planes, what's, I guess, first cab off off the rank? I think it's the low-hanging fruit needs to be how do we take some of that fleet and electrify them. That's the the, That's the easiest the, the thing. Easiest thing. Yep. I mean, I mean, to be honest, the easiest thing is how about we just put renewable diesel and biodiesel in place you know, as a replacement for liquid sources of fuel. However, those product products are so hard to get in Australia. There's a market distortion because those products inevitably go to the EU, which accommodates a higher margin on those products because of their renewable energy directive. They also go to the US and in particular to California because of their low carbon fuel standard. So you even see the feedstocks for those liquid sources of fuels leaving Australia 
and going to the EU and going to the US for products to be made there. And I'd love to keep them in Australia. So that would be my most logical starting point, but it's really challenging yeah. to make. Do, do you think there's an opportunity for some government intervention there and in, in Ab- policy change? Absolutely. And so there's a really good, oh, fingers crossed, policy change coming hopefully February next year. So the clean energy regulator at the moment is working on a new carbon credit unit methodology, so an ACU methodology. And that means that the minister will be approving the accumulation of ACUs for four different products. And you will see, you know, when you look at our fleet and our makeup, these affect all of us. So SAF, sustainable aviation fuel, EVs, electric vehicles, renewable diesel, and of course, hydrogen. So once the clean energy regulator puts in place that methodology, I think we're going to start to see a change in that market that will be able to accommodate a higher price because we'll be able to offset it in some manner by the value of the ACU. And that means, you know, we'll have renewable diesel coming into the market. The next step for us is going to be electric vehicles, of course, and how we accommodate them into our fleet. And EVs for trucks are not EVs for cars. They're hard. EVs for trucks are really hard. We need to be able to manage the distances that the trucks are going from the depots. We need to manage the weights in those vehicles because they're different. Our productivity of those are quite different. Our driver behaviour is quite different as well. So all of these different fuel types result in different behavioural changes that need to happen as well. Yeah. So on the EV side, is the weight the limiting factor on that as you get larger vehicles in the transition to hydrogen derivatives of that? Yeah, it's a combination of things for the EVs. At the moment, the battery limits, you know, so for a, say, a a Fuso Ecanter, you're probably limited to about 125, 150 kilometres at the most. And the reason I say at the most is you can't just assume it's about the distance the truck is taking. It's also about the energy that is consumed by things like your air conditioning and your heater. If you're driving on wet roads, that minimises down the number of kilometres you can do. Then you've got the the larger ones, the Volvo FLs, and they're going from, say, 150 to 200 kilometres. So you've got that distance around the depot that you need to minimise those trucks to. Then you've got the weight. So you've got steer axle weight limit changes and the way that the batteries are configured on the axle mean that you've got a different body shape and a different body type. And and in some instance, well, actually in that instance, you're only talking about a five centimetre difference on the body, but we can't run that under our existing regulatory regime. So the weight limits have to change. The distance limitations are, are onerous. The regulatory framework has to change. We we don't even know at this point in time what our drivers need to be certified in in order to drive an EV. So there's a lot of challenges coming together. And when you overlay that with hydrogen, you're overlaying a, a whole different number of questions as well. Yes, yeah. Um, how much is refueling time a consideration for you? Is that key? It is critical, Andy, absolutely critical. If you think about a, a slow-charging EV, 
you need to you know hook them up so that they're charging overnight when the prices are low. If you're charging during the day when the prices are high or doing a fast charger, you're going to blow your energy costs. You know, you might as well be using diesel in some instances. So you've got to slow charge overnight and have fast charging available such that if you run out of power, you can quickly top up during the day. You compare that to hydrogen and a hydrogen fuel cell vehicle. We're anticipating that most of those prime movers, and we are talking about prime movers rather than smaller and you know rigid trucks the prime movers are likely to be going 800 to a thousand kilometers you know wow. that's the sort of change but also when they top up it's going to be a 15 minute top up mm. as compared to slow and fast charging even with a fast charger you're, you're talking about an hour so hydrogen is definitely the way of the future for long distances heavy weights and fast charging times or fast top-up times in that instance. Yes. You just touched upon the energy costs during the day. Have you seen that kind of flip on its head in in recent times because of the influx of solar and and renewables coming on at midday? That's a really great point. When you look at the depot of the future, whatever that looks like, it is going to need to accommodate solar panels on the roof and battery backup. And the reason you need that battery backup is actually so that you can shave your peak load. You can manage those peaks and troughs with your energy demand. So if you can combine solar with battery, you can then manage your energy cost when you're charging your vehicles. And and that's actually really, really critical because, say, for example, most of our sites down in New South Wales, the large depots, they would have a peak energy time of between 4 p.m. and 8.30 at night. When everyone comes home, they're cooking, they're putting on the air conditioner or the heating. Uh, So that's your peak time. And that in some instances, multiplies your energy costs by five, by 10. We've seen over the last few weeks with the energy crisis, particularly in New South Wales, we've seen those energy demand and, and the peak load profiles very much turn the industry on its head. So you have to accommodate EVs at the lowest energy cost as much as you want to try and have the lowest diesel cost, but it takes you into a a whole different area of of driver behaviour and delivery behaviour. If we could, as an example, if we could deliver into the city areas at night because EVs are very quiet, hydrogen vehicles are very quiet, we could then minimise the traffic impact of those trucks being out and about during the day. So there's there's a lot of those changes that we can optimise and become more efficient. Yes. How far off are you on the hydrogen side getting the first hydrogen vehicles in? I would love to have hydrogen tomorrow, to be honest. But I think the reality is that the OEMs, our traditional OEMs that we work with, which are the uh, the Volvos, the Daimlers, the Scanias, the international OEMs, while they are starting to make hydrogen fuel cell vehicles as prototypes now, we are not likely to see them in this market until the end of this decade, really. So we've probably got a bit of time for things like the hydrogen superhighway to be built and for people to be optimising those routes, changing their behaviour, changing the depot layout because we're going to need tanks for hydrogen, for example. Mm -hmm. But I think it'll be the end of this decade, so probably 2028 and beyond before hydrogen is a reality for large and long-distance transport and logistics in Australia. 
So what are the main challenges that we've not already discussed that you need to overcome then? Are they going to be technology improvements? This is, I guess, focused on, um, well, the intent of my question is kind of focused on the hydrogen side of things, but uh, yeah, jobs and skills, is that going to be an issue for you? Absolutely. If you think about all of our drivers, most of them are under EBAs, you know, enterprise bargaining agreements. That's pretty much across the industry. They are going to be driving very different vehicles they're going to have to manage those vehicles in a very different way as well. So if you think back to the mid, probably 2000, 2005, even when the industry went from manual trucks to automatic gearboxes, that was a huge change (laughs) for the industry. Now what we're doing is we're saying, hey, we need you to optimise your regenerative braking. We need you to drive in such a way that you're minimising your loss of your energy, whether that's hydrogen fuel cells or EVs or or whatever it is. So the flow-on effect to the driver behaviour is going to be really, really big. And I think also we can't underestimate the notion of range anxiety and the fear of running out of fuel. It's very easy to top up with diesel if you need to compared to topping up your EV or topping up your hydrogen. So there's going to be driver behaviour changes. There's going to be regulatory changes. You know, We don't know what does a fuel tax credit system look like for those future fuels? At the moment, we know the excise limitations for diesel and for petrol. We don't know what the federal government is planning on doing when we're decarbonising. Are they going to tax hydrogen? Are they going to have a, a road user charge instead? So there's a lot of those questions that are still out there. We're going to need to have ADR, so Australian design rule changes around our fleet. We're going to have PBS changes for our heavy vehicles. So, you know, different body types, different configurations in order to carry more freight with less vehicle movements. So all of these things, we we just don't know what they're going to be right now. And we're having those conversations. The, The industry is having those conversations. But as you know, Andy, any of those changes take a long time to come to fruition. You know, any regulatory change, any policy change takes a really long time to get to fruition. And having a change in the government the way that we have now, we know at least they're they're definitely going down the decarbonate. Exactly. You can you know what their intent's going to be. How we get there is still a lot of unknown when it comes to to hydrogen in particular. Have you got any comments or advice for either some of the suppliers and some of the support organisations of toll that you've got at the moment or companies that you're likely to need to help you along the decarbonisation journey in the future of how some of the things that they could perhaps be thinking about at the moment if they're not doing so already? I always say that decarbonisation, it's a bit of a community in the sense that we have to be working together on this. I'll give you an example. One of the heavy truck manufacturers, one of the Asian heavy truck manufacturers is really keen to get into Australia. We've got a MOU signed with them on a a particular project and um, we had a a Teams hookup maybe before or five months ago. And uh, our, our colleagues overseas, I sort of flippantly said, okay, so when are you planning on your ADR approval, your design rule approvals? And there was this completely blank look on their face. And I turned and looked at some of my colleagues and went, to, sorry, you, you realise we have design rules in Australia that you have to meet. 
and they, they were realize. and they they were still <laughs> now this is an international OEM, a really big international OEM, and they just didn't realize that because they've never entered this market in that way, they didn't realize that there were. ADR approvals that they were, and, and simple things like headlights or you know tires. So I think we can't underestimate how, as an industry, we need to work together on this. We need to be working with all of our parts and manufacturing supply chain. We need to be working with each of the OEMs and helping them along the journey because. It's not as simple as putting a truck into the market and hoping someone will buy it. The OEMs, the traditional OEMs, are very good at understanding the Australian market is quite different to the rest of the world. And I don't say that flippantly. The Australian market has heat, it has hills, it has flooding, it has supply chain issues unique to Australia. And you can't just overlap your learning from Asia or America or Sweden and say, well, this is how you need to do it. <laughs> Unfortunately, Australia is quite different. So my advice is that the industry really needs to be working together on this and learning from each other because there's not so much intellectual property in all of those things. It's actually about how- Everyone's we got to work. That's it. Every piece of the pie has got to work together, hasn't it? I was having a conversation. You mentioned Volvo before with one of the managers over at Volvo, and I quite like the way that he he put it. He said the rules of engagement have changed. Collaboration is the new leadership. So I quite like the, uh, their, their, their take so on that. True. And like you say, kind of helping the education of your partners. And in the end, ultimately, Tall or you yourselves are going to win as well. And I think the consumer has to see us working together on this to make that difference. And I think there's a lot of opportunities to share that knowledge amongst the industry so that we're all going down that decarbonisation path together because we actually can't afford for anyone to fail. We actually can't afford for that to happen. And if you think back to the changing to alternative fuels and back in the, I guess, the 90s and the 2000s, there was a lot of cowboys into the market. We actually can't afford for anyone to fail because it just sets off a whole, I guess, chain or snowball of failures as well. So we have to be working together on this. Yeah. Is there any particular areas of that supply chain that you're nervous or concerned about at the moment? The supply chain as a total at the moment I'm concerned about. <laughs> I think the the international ramifications of the war in the Ukraine, I would say they're still going to play out for the next 18 to 24 months without a doubt. I think there will be probably a reset in the market come, you know, this time next year because for for so long people have been putting in orders for vehicles and they know that they're not going to get them for 12 or 24 months. You know, I've put in an order for a, a new car and they let me know the other day and they, sorry, I put the order in about six months ago and they let me know the other day that I'm unlikely to get it until June next year and I work in the industry so I understand those supply chain limitations. So I, I think hopefully we will see a, a bit of a shift come this time next year. But at the moment, we're still suffering through that post-COVID lag and the supply chains are still trying to figure themselves out. 
in the meantime, it's like, you know, I don't know if you tried to catch a plane recently, but, you know, any airport is a nightmare because they still haven't quite got, you know, Alan Joyce was very kind in saying that the travellers aren't quite up to match day fitness. I'll tell you what, the airports aren't up to match <laughs> no, day shocking, fitness, isn't, isn't it? it? Yeah, yeah. No, first time the, uh, yeah. yeah, delays and cancellations. Yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. So I, I think, you know, the OEMs are very rapidly reaching match day fitness and, and you know, we're going to start seeing supply chain hopefully going back to normal. Appreciate it's not told directly, but some of the companies that you mentioned before that were very supportive and want to be the, the leaders that you're working with, so likes of Coles, Woolworths, IKEA, and you might have mentioned one, one other. Officeworks, yep. Officeworks. So, yep. yeah, what are some of the things that they're, they're doing and how does that kind of link into the work that you and your team are doing? Well, I think one of the challenges for any of those organisations is they've tackled their low-hanging fruit. The decarbonisation is actually very challenging for them to do. And I'll give you the example that until recently, I don't think any of the transport operators would really have been able to tell them what their emissions were. (laughs) And even to this day, I know for certain parts of our business, I can tell you to a level of latitude and longitude what your emissions are for that particular consignment note. But if it goes through a courier division, for example, where you might be subcontracting that arrangement, actually getting to that level of granularity for your emissions data is extremely hard. So I think we're just at the tip for a lot of those or a lot of our customers in being able to say, okay, this is what we believe the emissions profile looks like. And this is how we want to get to a level of granularity that you're happy with. But I I think in Australia, we've been a bit of a laggard in even pulling that information together. I think the mining fraternity have done it very well for a long time based on their, their diesel emissions. The transport and logistics industry is very reliant on subcontractors. So if you think of that 6,500 fleet that we've got, we've got that again of subcontractors as well. And so we need to start having those conversations about if you can't measure it, how do you manage it? You know, it's a fairly yeah. simple data proposition, isn't it? But mm-hmm. we need to have those conversations with our subcontractors in order to to drive that change as well. Do you think there could be hubs developed around some of your sites then in terms of, uh, you know, refueling hubs that other organisations could utilise? And would you want it to kind of take ownership or is that really outside Toll's scope? Andy, that is the best question I ever get asked is, how do we eat this elephant? And I actually think we're going to end up with a number of solutions. By that, I mean our bigger depots where it makes financial and economic sense for us to install our hydrogen tanks and our EV infrastructure, we will do that at our bigger depots. We're not ever likely, I don't think, to have our own electrolyzers on site and making our own hydrogen. I don't think that's what we're going to do. But also those larger sites, we often don't own them. We have a landlord that we have to consider. So we have to change the relationship with our landlord about what we're doing on that site and how do we work together for renewable energy. Then there's going to be how do our subcontractors access some of that infrastructure on our site or how do those subcontractors and us accommodate um, you know, the fuel changes in particular hub and spoke areas. So I truly think we're going to have a number of different solutions in a number of different places and there's not going to be one perfect answer. I think we'll have charging stations and hydrogen networks on the Hume Highway and the regular routes. We'll definitely have those 
large interfaces in the same way that we do now. We have those exchanges now. I think the danger for hydrogen in particular, less so EVs because I think it'll be great for whether it's the public or the smaller vehicles to be able to come in, plug in, go and have a coffee, come back out and have a fast charge. I think the challenge for hydrogen is making sure that it is readily available at places where it's required versus being readily available at places where the trucks don't go. Does that make sense? (laughs) Because I get approached at least once a week from people who want to set up hydrogen infrastructure, but it's 200 k's off the Hume Highway. And so while it makes sense for them to put it there because they've got land for solar, they can make, you know, they've got water, they've got irrigation rights, water rights, whatever, and they can make the hydrogen there at a terrific cost, but they still have to get it to where it's required. And I think the danger that we've got at the moment, particularly in the political climate around hydrogen, is I think our politicians just love making announcements about hydrogen at the moment. They just, you know, oh, they it's just. It's every day, isn't it? <laughs> that is, is every day there's an announcement about hydrogen. And at least half of them, I think, hmm, but that's not actually where I need it. No, no. It's almost like those organizations have kind of got the, the tail wagging the dog, as it were. They've got an idea, they've got a technological solution. But yeah, the kind of adage of marketing start with a customer in, in mind, isn't it? And. I go back to what I said earlier about alternative fuels, and I, and I include a very broad church in alternative fuels. Those are the cowboys. They're the new age cowboys who they've got a fantastic block of land, but they're forgetting they're then going to have to transport that hydrogen somewhere for it to be actually used. And so I think, again, working together with those industries, because I don't want them to fail. They can't afford to fail. We can't afford them to fail. We need to make sure that the industry is working together on making those solutions where they need to be. And what do you think can be achieved in the next five years then for Toll? How much of your fleet, just to put you on the spot there, do you think (laughs) is going to transition over the next five years? You know, I honestly think that we will be able to decarbonise quite a variety of our fleet, certainly between now and 2030. So if I think of 2030, will we be able to get a 50% 50% reduction. I actually think we can, but that's going to come about by a number of different methods. It's going to be renewable diesel, it's going to be biodiesel, so liquid sources of fuel. It's going to be changing out our light and mediums and our vans into electric vehicles. I don't think we're going to see a really big change over to hydrogen in that short period of time. I think it'll be sort of 28, 29 when we're starting to see them in volume coming into the Australian market. But There's no reason why we couldn't be using renewable diesel until it gets there. So with vehicles which are far more efficient on the road, with drivers who are driving in a far more efficient manner, in low rolling resistance tyres, in you know, the simple things that we can do now, and then there's going to be the changeover to EVs for a certain part of the fleet, there's going to be renewable diesel, and then hopefully it's sooner rather than later that we see hydrogen really coming into this market. I think the the challenge for our OEMs, uh, Australia's a long way away from everywhere else. And so we tend to be at the end of the market rather than at the tipping point. But I, I would certainly say to any of the OEMs out there listening to this, 
I want your hydrogen fuel cell <laughs> trucks now. I want to test them now. Give them to me so that we can learn together and we can get the industry going. So, you know, for any of you out there, give me a call. Make sure that they're meeting ADR specs, yep. that they've got a strong warranty, you know, that we, they can be insured, that we can buy the hydrogen. But yeah, give me a call and, and let's get started on this. Yeah, that's fantastic, Heather. And we'll put a link to your email address. Yeah, on sure. The, Absolutely. On the podcast notes. So yeah, reach but, out oh, to- oh, Reach out to, yeah, heather.bone at tollgroup.com. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to me about your trucks. You've got an, such an exciting role for Toll and it's great that you've got the support and you've got an equally engaged CEO or uh, MD. What do you see as your- aspiration then or you know what would make your role successful over the next few years wow well first up i would say i think i've got the best job in the world <laughs> i honestly do because i get to play with big trucks and fuel and all of the things that i love in the world and you know i i say to people i'm an esg tragic because i'm the first to admit that i love going to the v8 supercars um, <laughs> <laughs> you're in the right job yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so i'm in the right job um <laughs> However, what was your question again? Oh, I think that I'm going to feel success in my job when the team around me, particularly the operational team, don't look quite so scared when they see me coming. <laughs> so, you know, the first you know, nearly year of this job, because it's coming up to a year, gee, the first nine or 10 months, I got a lot of very odd looks from <laughs> you know, the, the guys out on the on the shop floor and our, our team who look after the design and specifications. And one of them always says to me that he's, he's happy for us to be at the cutting edge, but he doesn't want us to be at the bleeding edge. <laughs> He's really come along such an amazing journey over the last year. And I'm starting to sense that change because they're saying, wow, this is actually, this is pretty cool. This is transformational for our industry. They, you look to transport and logistics, it hasn't changed in over a hundred years, you know, since Rudolf Diesel invented the diesel engine. This is going to be the most transformational change and journey that the transport and logistics industry has ever seen. So being at the forefront of that, wow, I mean, who could ask for more? Yeah. And how can the audience follow what Toll is, is doing then? Yeah. Yeah. So we are in the process of going through a rebranding exercise. So in the next few weeks, hopefully, you're going to see a new brand out there. It might be a, a few more months. And I know that our communications team is going to be putting a, a lot of information out there in social media. You can follow us on, I think it's hashtag Global Express. But a lot of our, I guess, our communication interfaces are, are with, we sit at this interesting place between our customers and their customers. So, if you think of, say, Ikea as an example or Woolworths, we are the ones delivering to their customers. They are our customers delivering to their customers. So, it's a, a funny sort of place to be. And the most important thing I think that we can do is show the brand and show what we're doing to those customers in whatever way we can. Yeah. And it's your passion and your enthusiasm for the role, it really comes across. Uh, oh, I, I say to our customer teams, you know, our sales and account managers, I say, I will come to the opening of the door if it means that I can get to talk about our journey on decarbonisation, because the more we talk about it, the more <laughs> we're going to be able to make that change. 
Have you got any asks of the audience? So they're primarily hydrogen-related audience, anything from students through to people who are engaged in the industry already or even general public who are looking to learn more about the, the emerging hydrogen sector, primarily in Australia, but also got a good listener base right across the world in Europe, in the States, and Southeast Asia. Any asks of, of the audience then? Get in touch. Yeah. Be in touch, particularly the students, the researchers. I always get a real buzz. I mentor a few of the researchers down in New South Wales, which is odd because I'm a Queenslander. But I find that a lot of our, you know, our PhD students, our graduates, are, they're streaks ahead of anything that you and I, well, maybe not you, but certainly me, uh, you know, <laughs> of what we're going to be able to. So, so definitely be in touch. And we've got the hydrogen conference coming up in September. So you've got to make sure that you put the dates in, uh, in the podcast for that. It's what the, Eighth uh, and 9th of September. Yeah, there we go. Good, 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 to, good plug for that. Good plug. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. there's uh, there's a lot of really great forums coming up for hydrogen for EVs. In fact, I think you could probably go and listen to one once a week at the moment. I guess my ask would also be: I, I don't really need the cowboys to approach me. I want the people who are genuinely passionate, who know what they're talking about. As I said. We will be at the cutting edge, but not the bleeding edge. So we're probably not the right organisation for something that just hasn't been tried at all before because we can't afford for our operations to be impacted in that way and our customers won't accept our operations to be impacted by a truck on the side of the road, for example, that inevitably gets photos taken into social media and, you know. So I would say, you know, if you're genuine about the industry and you genuinely want to be a part of the journey, please don't hesitate to reach out. Great stuff. I think we'll leave it there. That was fantastic, Heather, and uh, such an informative discussion. Thanks for having me, Andy. Love what you're doing and love what Toll's doing. So uh, look forward to catching up at some point in the future and uh, hearing how you're going with it. Absolutely. And don't forget that plug for the Hydrogen Conference in September. (laughs) (laughs) All good. Thanks for having me, Andy. Cheers. I'm Andy Marsland. Hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks for joining us on the Hydrogen Journey. We welcome you to join us at our next episode. Please remember to subscribe and review the show and hope to see you next time. Mm